I want to uh, express my uh, deep appreciation to our church, to all of you uh, who helped this week. We had so many comments from all the people that attended uh, the Thursday night and Friday service and the dinners and dessert Friday night. Just again and again and again overwhelmed at the love of this church and your service uh, to them. And I just praise God. Uh, I'm, I'm overwhelmed as well to be a part of this church and why did I get to come here? I don't know, but I'm glad to be a part of you, dear, dear people. It was, uh, as I approached the time of the funeral, the whole week was just consuming in so many ways. Um, and I just, you know, Friday I just wanted Let's all be in a big hug for about a week. You know, just hold on to each other. And I think the Lord gave us that kind of time together. And we were able to provide that atmosphere for so many who came. And, and of course, for Leanne and her family. Uh, what a testimony of Christ you've been. And I praise God for it. Let me pray and then we'll read this passage. We're going to read from Hebrews 11, page 1008, beginning with page 20, I mean, sorry, verse 23. I'm probably just going to be crazy up here, um, but we'll try to get through it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Thank you for your grace this week. Thank you that when in the loss of such a dear friend to so many, such a dear brother in Christ, such a one who's been used so much by Christ, that you would draw near to us and give yourself to us and that you would enable this body of believers, to pour itself out in such servanthood and love when this body itself was in pain. Lord, what a wonderful image of Christ on the cross, still looking outwardly, still ministering to the thief, pronouncing forgiveness on his persecutors, tending to his own mother, or Jesus when he had heard of John the Baptist being beheaded and the loss, and he drew away and the crowds followed and he had compassion and ministered to them. Lord, thank you for this show of Christ in these dear people. Lord, we pray for Leanne and the family as they have the graveside tomorrow. We pray for the proclamation of your word, prayers, and everything to be used to draw people to Jesus Christ. We thank you for how you have drawn many to Christ in many different ways and how Christ has been proclaimed from the pulpit and from individuals to even Dustin's family and others. And 
We pray, Lord, that you would give safety and travel there and back. We pray that you would own that service and, Lord, again, draw near and manifest yourself. We pray for peace for ourselves, for Leanne, for the children, for the family. The very peace of Christ that surpasses comprehension. And Lord, we come somewhat tired and battered by this week. We come still a bit bewildered and disoriented. We come, Lord, to hear from your word. We come to drink from Jesus Christ. As was declared in our prayer time, you are the resurrection and the life. And we have no life besides you, Lord. We have no hope beside you. We have nothing beside the cross. We have nothing in heaven and earth but you, Lord Jesus. But in you we have everything forever. And we praise you. And we come to you. For your name's sake. Amen. Verse 23. Come to the story of Moses. Jumping now from Genesis to the book of Exodus. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, or the word could be translated extraordinary. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Our focus will be primarily on verses 24 through 26 and Moses and his refusal of the riches of Egypt to be identified with the people of God. I want to ask you a question. It may seem a bit mundane, but would you eat a worm? Would, would you eat a worm? Now, most of you are thinking, of course not. I would not eat a worm under any circumstance. But you may have been asking, too, is, is everybody a little bit warm? Uh, I'm seeing people wave. Maybe we could tune down the if it's, it's a little bit warm. Um, you might be asking, well, what's the catch? Or you might be asking, do I get something if I eat the worm? And then if it's something enough, then you might, you know. Maybe on a dare, maybe showing off or getting attention, that would be the reward for you. But if I offered you, look, I'll give you $10 if you'll eat a worm. Most of you would say, not even close, dude. But if you were a street person... 
and an alcoholic, and it would mean a bottle of gin for the day, you'd eat a worm just like that. No thought about it. Because the reward would be well worth eating a worm. I have a bottle of gin. No, I'll eat however many worms you want for that bottle of gin. If I offered you $100, probably most of you still, or $1,000, you might do it for $1,000. If you needed just that much to avoid foreclosure on your home, you'd eat it just like that. Now, if I said, would you eat a worm for 25 million tax-free dollars? Is there one human being in this room that would not eat that worm? Just one worm. Okay, okay. You would eat this otherwise gross worm. In fact, you would probably say, if I asked that, pass the salt and pepper now. But you would eat this otherwise gross worm actually with a sense of expectation, with a sense of joy at the result of eating this worm. And even though if it was gross in the midst of it, you'd say, it doesn't matter, man. It doesn't matter. In fact, if... uh, there's going to be a drawing and the first hundred people got a chance to draw for eating the worm. The minute it was announced that the first hundred people, you'd be in line. If you waited for a week, you'd be in line for the privilege of eating the worm. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how that one thing can be completely changed by how you regard the reward or not? Completely transformed in your mind. From something that you would never do to something that you would do in a flash with eagerness and expectation. In that light, listen to what F.F. F. Bruce writes concerning Moses. What others would have considered, that is, his leaving this high position in Egypt, the richest, uh, most exalted positions in the ancient world. Bear in mind, he said, what others would have considered as something to be shunned at all costs, he esteemed as a prize to be eagerly sought. Most people would have just stood in his way. No, you're throwing your life away. How are you crazy? And he saw it as something to be that, that he esteemed as a as a prize that he eagerly sought. And so we read, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. Which led... One writer, to put it this way, the power of the present world can only be put down by the power of the world to come. And I hope you will fix that in your heart. In all temptation, in all persecution, 
in any temptation to turn away from Christ in any way, the power of this world will only be put down by the power of the world to come. How powerful is that reward in your heart? How influential in your life every day is the power of the world to come? How does your heart beat for reward? We are many times so inoculated against the thought of reward. And hopefully for good reason in some cases because of all the talk about health and wealth. And we are going to speak against that emphatically this morning. But caught up with that is the idea that we should simply serve him because it's the right thing to do. And that's true. Or the idea, of course, that we have to speak against is that the reward is something other than having Christ himself. All the stuff Christ could get me. But the reward is essentially him to have him to the full, to be like him completely, to see him exalted To bury myself forever in the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. To fellowship with Him and and manifest Him in every way. And to live my life in the new heavens and the new earth in complete conformity in the beauty of Christ forever and ever. And see what that looks like with a world full of perfect people in perfect love. Now that's reward. It doesn't have anything to do with stuff. With this thing or that thing, it has to do with this essential desire that we have for Jesus himself. And the promise of God that we will have that to the full. This text needs to be tied to verse six of this chapter, because it's the only other time in this chapter where the word reward is brought up. In that fantastic definition of faith in verse six, without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And especially the emphasis is that he rewards those who seek him. Literally, he is the rewarder. You must think of him as the glorious, infinite Bounding rewarder of anyone who spins his life away for Jesus Christ. That you are never the loser in this, that you are never giving up something for nothing. Jesus will not have us think that way. He says you must believe That you are ultimately the gainer as you even spend your life. You must believe that or you won't please him. So that there's never the sense of the martyr, you know, the sense of all that I've given up, all that I've gone through, all that I've spent myself on. But there is this glorious sense, as expressed in Matthew 13, of The kingdom of God, when we find that treasure in the field and for joy over it, we go and spend all that we have. There's Christ's definition of someone who encounters the kingdom of God. Giving up everything, not 
reluctantly, not unwillingly, not begrudgingly, not sadly, but with a sense of joy. You see, giving up everything for this joy of embracing the kingdom, embracing Christ. And so, here is Moses, not just in the strict sense, doing the right thing. That's not what the writer says. He doesn't say Moses did the right thing and he identified with the people of Israel. He, he goes underneath. He gives us the heart of it. And brothers and sisters, he's telling us, he's saying this to people that are abandoning Christ. He's trying to draw them into what is the heartbeat of Christianity. What is the heartbeat, the galvanizing steel and strength and concrete and foundation of our commitment to Jesus Christ? And that is that we find a wealth in Christ that is greater than any treasure that the world could give to us. A wealth in Christ that is more important to us than even keeping our own life. And that is a joy that we have in him. You see in this passage, and we can't go into all the details uh, of it, but in verse 23, his parents, they saw and they think that when it says they saw that the child was beautiful or extraordinary, this ties in with the uh, ancient idea and reality, really, that uh, there was a connection between uh, the way he appeared and, and the gifts that he had and the future, even the destiny that he had in God in God's purpose. So they were and some even think that perhaps there was a communication to his parents. There's in Jewish literature something about this of Amram, his, his father, receiving uh, indications in a dream, but we wouldn't go that far. But we would just say in some way they knew that there was an extraordinary call of God on this child's life. And so they were obedient to that call and they protected him, even though it could mean their own death. It could have meant the worst thing for them, but they weren't afraid of the king's edict. So faith overcame this The same thing in verse 27. By faith, he left Moses, left Egypt. And I won't go into it, but there's some difficulty of deciding whether this is referring to the first time he left after he slayed the Egyptian or the last time he left with the children of Israel. Because it would take a long time to lay out both sides of that argument. I'm going to leave that for right now. But just to talk about this, he was not afraid of the anger of the king. It's a phrase that kind of closes this section of the early part of Moses' life. His parents weren't afraid of the king's edict. He wasn't afraid of the anger of the king. But why was he able not to be afraid? It says, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And literally it means he continued steadfastly looking to him who is invisible. Which brings us back to chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So this calls to mind 
what he was uh, that that idea of looking to the invisible, looking to that which is not seen. And the same thing in verse 24 and following, because it says in verse 26, he was looking to the reward. And the idea is that he was looking away from the present experience of suffering. And he was the the verb tense is he was fixed in looking. He had this constant vision of reward. And then it's said in another way in verse 27, this vision of him who is invisible. We see bring those together. The reward is bound up in his vision of God. He knew his God. He was fixed upon him and his this controlled what he saw about life. It was because of what he saw in God and God being the rewarder for those that spend their lives for him, that he could reassess his situation and see that being a part of Pharaoh's household for me is going is not the will of God. It is not obedience to God. And he abandoned his heirship and he identified completely with the people of God. And in doing so, he was identifying specifically with the suffering people. And in doing so, this is identifying with Christ himself, the reproach of Christ. Now, back up with me to chapter 10. Verse 32. And look how this. Parallels what was said about these very people to whom the writer is addressing. Verse 32 of chapter 10. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach. There's the same word. You were bearing reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. So just like Moses had purposely bore reproach because he identified with the people of God, you yourselves bore reproach and affliction because you were partners with those that were bearing reproach and affliction. And then he says you had compassion on those in prison. And because you had compassion, you could have stayed away. You could have laid low so nobody would have known that you too were a believer. But you didn't. Because of the need of those that were in prison and you went to feed them and clothe them because they wouldn't have had anything to eat or drink. They wouldn't have been clothed if you hadn't gone. So you went and because of that, you as well were driven out of your home. Your property was plundered. But how did you accept it? You accepted it, verse 34, joyfully. Because you knew, hear it again, they're looking to the you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. And notice verse 35, because this, this just ties so closely. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And we studied this passage, but I want us to keep it, bear it in mind. This has a great reward, this better possession, this abiding one that you have. And so he's setting forth, uh, setting before them the example of Moses. 
This is against the backdrop of their own example when they bore reproach looking to the future. And yet these same people now were turning away from Christ. And here's the great irony is that these were Jewish believers now turning away from the Christian fellowship back to the relative safety of Jewish belief. Because the Jews at this point were politically safe compared to the Christians. So... It's like now the irony is these Jews were identifying with Pharaoh and their fellow Jews over and against the Christians that now were exposed to the wrath of the king. And they were abandoning them. He refers to that again in chapter uh, 10 when he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Refusing to meet together because they were afraid of what would happen if they did so. And it says here about, Pharaoh, about Moses, when it says he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh, the idea there is that he despised to be called. He disdained to be called. You see, his sense was that's nothing I have no regard for that. That has nothing of importance to me anymore. Here is my reward. Here is my treasure. And that's what, that's what happens to you. The more you know the Lord Jesus Christ, the more He becomes your treasure, and the more of what the world calls treasure is no longer your treasure. Or this, because we need to be careful because creation... And legitimate culture is part of God's making and it is to be enjoyed under God. But you find yourself that if I go on a vacation, for instance, and I am not in fellowship with God and I am not walking with Jesus Christ, it is not going to be a good vacation. It's going to be a crummy vacation. I don't care where I go or what I do. You can bring anything in the world to me, any sets of pleasures before me, and it will be empty and hollow and it will eventually grind to a halt and it will just make me more and more depressed if, if I am not in fellowship with Christ. That's the first part of life is to have Christ, to have him in what I do. In enjoying creation to get to worship Him in creation. And I tell you, if I didn't have that part, for, <laughs> well, let me just give an example. My crazy cat, Oreo, that I inherited from my uh, son, I've never seen a cat do this, and I've told a few of this, but I, he, he began chasing on our wood floors this little bottle cap. I mean, you just hear it all the time, chasing the bottle cap, chasing the bottle cap. And one day I was going into the porch and I hear this meow and I look down and he's actually found a bottle cap in the yard and he wants to bring it in to play with it. How crazy cat you're finding bottle caps to play with on the wooden floor. So things develop and finally I start throwing them and now he's constantly after me. I come out of my bedroom. He's lying there with a bottle cap like, let's go. I flip it all the way down the hall. 
here's this cat, ninety to nothing, crashing into things, spinning around, grabbing it in his little paws, picking it up in his mouth, carrying it back. You know? <laughs> and I just I laugh at him every time. I've never seen a cat carrying a little white bottle cap, you know. And, but you know what the best part of that is? To think, Lord God, you made this cat. Who are you that you would make an animal like this? Who are you that you would foresee that I would have a delight in this animal? Now I can go on about cat stories, but. So I want to be careful when we talk about. Counting everything as no treasure, because it's easy then to become almost Gnostic that there's nothing that we can enjoy in this world anymore. And we only enjoy reading the Bible and thinking about Christ, but we can't enjoy anything else because that would be sinful or that would be idolatrous. But I hope you understand what we're saying is that, and and here's the real test. If it's all taken away, if there is no cat and there's no home and there's no family, if a wife loses a husband or husband or wife or parents their child or the economy goes bad. If there's persecution and we're imprisoned, do we just stay the same, giving ourselves up to Christ? Because He's the essence. He was the essence in the good times. He's the essence in the bad times. He's the meaning of life, good or bad. He's the point. And a vital part of that, that we learn in this passage is that those who live for Christ, those who say with Paul, for me to live is Christ, they realize that ultimately Christ may take all of my life away, but He promises me, He promises me, I will have Him forever. And I want to lay that challenge before you because for some of us, the reward of heaven really may not be Christ Himself. For some of you, the reward of heaven may be, I won't be sick anymore. Bad things won't happen anymore. All the stuff of this world will be gone. But as the Puritans would say, if Christ is not in heaven, then heaven will be a veil of tears. That was their word. (laughs) That's so glorious. He is our treasure. He is our reward. And so we seek Him. We spend ourselves completely for Him, even though we might lose everything in the process. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians as he describes the ministry and describes the treasure that we have in jars of clay. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And in this same letter is where he says. In the same chapter, just a few verses down. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So the two things working in us in our life, spending ourselves, slowly dying for Christ 
if in any way Christ might be manifested by our life. Suffering in any way that He causes to, if you will be glorified, Jesus. If you will conform me to, to yourself, Lord Jesus. If you will enable me to manifest you. If you will enable me to know you more. Spend me, do whatever you want to as long as I have more and more of you. And Lord, if I lose everything, I hold this final thing that this momentary light affliction is working for me a glory of eternal weight beyond comparison. This could not be more diametrically opposed to what you hear, and I'll name a name, out of Joel Osteen's mouth week after week in Houston. Who declares the very opposite, that you will always, in every way, have more and more good stuff. And things will be better and you'll always be well and you all have, and and the more you believe in Him, the better things will get. It is diametrically opposed to the gospel which says, I call you to this, I call you to death for my sake. And we hold forth a gospel that, hold, that sets forth a Christ that is so glorious, so, so captivating, so colossal in our thinking that we'll spend our lives for Him. We'll be fools for Him. We'll lose everything for Him. That's the glory of Jesus Christ. Not... Jesus will give you everything that you want. And like, as you've heard John Piper say, that's like he's he's your pimp now. And he'll go and find you something to sleep with, even though he's your true husband. He gives you himself. That was the problem with Israel in the wilderness that this writer speaks about. And he tries to, to urge these people he's speaking to to turn away from this. But the people of Israel had God to the full in the wilderness. They didn't even have to sow. They didn't have to do any work. All they had to do was just be in the presence and hear the word of God and fellowship with this God. They didn't want him. They wanted to go back to Egypt. To slavery. They didn't want the freedom of worshiping God. They wanted the slavery and the good food that they had when they were slaves. And I know I may sound mean up here. I don't mean to be mean and I don't mean to attack any particular individual. He represents a whole movement in our nation that militates against this passage and and most of the New Testament that says we have a Christ so glorious that we fix ourselves upon the reward of having Him forever and the present reward of manifesting Him in whatever way He chooses. And that's why when you suffer, when I suffer, our question before God is the one that my friend uh, so long ago who lost his father, uh, John DeVries, who's married to uh, the Redfields' daughter, and John was... Uh, had lost his father. His father was in the final days of dying. And, uh, and I, I called him and, and said, Brother, I've just been so concerned for you. How are you doing? And he said, I just want to know how I might please Christ in this. And I thought, yeah, that's the question. That's the question in suffering. How might I please him? 
Oh, Lord, may I know you. Lord, might I manifest you. Lord, may I bring glory to your name. And, oh, Lord, if I lose everything, I thank you that I have you to the full. I have the reward of Christ forever and ever. So Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Here's the final point, though. Uh, you and I will not do this on our own. We just, we're just not these kind of people. It's okay to admit that. You know, it's, it's important to admit that. It's important to say in the first place, Lord God, I, I just don't have the capacity in myself to count you that kind of treasure. And I know how many days I don't count you that kind of treasure. How many times you fade from view. How many times, Lord, my heart is fixed on anything but you. My, my heart is crowded with idols. So by his grace, we can come to him and say, oh, Lord Jesus, this is interesting. When Paul says in Philippians 3 that I want to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, preceded, interestingly, by this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Only as you and I know the power of his resurrection and his new life, which he has to give to us completely, can we then enter into, willingly and joyfully, the fellowship of his sufferings and his death. I love that, that order. Only as he imparts his life to you and me, the very life of Christ that, in which he sacrificed himself, when we have the life of his spirit, then and only then can we share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. Will you examine your heart? Will you ask yourself, Especially when even something as insignificant, and kids, it's okay to use this word every once in a while, stupid, as eating a worm can be made something wonderful because of what it will bring about. What if what you're doing itself is full of richness and nobility and courage and love and you stick to those glorious things because of the glorious issue of eternal reward. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that you save us. You save us from our idolatries. You save us from our adultery. You save us from our foolish pride. You save us from our ignorance our twisted view of life. You save us from our dark view of Jesus, our blindness to His beauty and glory, our refusal of His love, our denial of the reward of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we are stricken. We are diseased with unbelief. 
It is why we do not speak to our neighbors, why we do not minister to them, why we don't reach out to them, why we do not pray, why we think that the TV will bring us more pleasure than the Word and prayer. And we build up hours and hours in the one and hardly minutes in the other because we do not believe in the reward of giving our lives to Jesus Christ. Lord, we cry out to You. Make us like Moses. Yes, Lord, make us like Jesus Himself. Make us like Paul. Forgive us for our sin, Lord. Forgive us and make us clean in Christ. We recognize He alone can forgive us of our sins. He has died, even for cowards. He has died for those who denied Him. He has died for those who despised Him and thought Him nothing. Oh Lord, forgive us and plant in our hearts a burning desire, a joy, a sight of Your glory. And may we be like Moses, continually looking to You, Lord Jesus. Continually looking to You. Fix our eyes on you, Christ. We pray it for your glory and honor. Amen.